Hey, what's good, y'all? This is the third and final episode of our Fuck Your Water Fountain miniseries for now. We'll do more of these later, but look, if you haven't listened to the first two in this series yet, please go back and do that. It'll make this one make much more sense. And if you have listened, bet. Thank you. So today, our producer Mac is going to do the honors of inducting his pick into the Hall of Fame. Oh, and just a quick warning. This episode has a lot of curse words in it. Heavy themes, violence, all that. We'll get started right after this short break. All right, what you what you what you got for me today? All right, so first of all, I just want to say that I had to get myself real hyped to do this. Um, I actually had to like go to my altar, you know, invite the mm-hmm. ancestors in. I had to stretch a little <laughs> bit. I like walked. Okay. Cause I gotta do this right. I don't want nobody messaging me. I don't want nobody knocking on my door telling me I ain't I didn't do this <laughs> justice. Um, cause mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to talk about somebody who really kind of helped frame my worldview. Um but oh, bef- I'm really excited for this then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um before I get into like who they are, I wanna like show you this clip um to give you an idea of what type of time we are on today. Oh, okay. Lyndon Johnson, he can always raise an argument about law and order because he never talks about justice. But black people fall for that same argument and they go around talking about lawbreakers. We did not make the laws in this country. We are neither mor- morally nor legally confined to those laws. Those laws that keep them up keep us down. You got to begin to understand that. For 400 years, she taught you white nationalism and you left it up. You taught it to your children. You had your children thinking that everything black was bad. Black cows don't give good milk. Black hens don't lay eggs. Black for funerals, white for weddings. That's white nationalism. Santa Claus. A white honky who slides down a black chimney and comes out white. We tend to equate progress with concessions. We can no longer make that mistake. You see, when they gave us that nigga astronaut, you say we were making progress, but I told you they were going to lose him in space. He didn't get that far. Damn. Damn. You put Adam Clayton Powell in office and you couldn't keep him. What you think they're going to do with Thurgood Marshall when they get tired of him? They gave you Walter Washington of Washington, D.C., and you said we were making progress. That's not progress. See, it's no in-between. You're either free or you're a slave. There's no such thing as second-class citizenship. That's wow. like telling me you can be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> oh, my God. Yo, what? <laughs> okay, I've I've always heard of this man, but I've never seen this. I've never seen him speak. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. So, so just in case, just before people get confused, the person that I just the, the person in the video I just played, his name is H. Rat Brown. H. Rat Brown. It's a kind of name that's hard to forget once you hear it. Whenever I heard it back in college or something, it stuck in the back of my mind. But I don't remember any of the details about the man. I knew the basics, that he was a revolutionary who probably sacrificed a lot for us, but 
Whenever people brought up his name in conversation, I just mm-hmm and nod confidently as if I knew more. Because the last thing you want is for other black folks to think that you may not know as much as you need to know about black history. Which makes no sense because it's not like we learned about this shit in school. There's no streets or statues for folks like H. Rap Brown, no curriculum, none of that. But still, it feels embarrassing that I don't know more about somebody who was probably willing to put it all on the line for me. And I think sometimes in our shame, we choose not to admit what we don't know. We choose not to ask questions and find out more. And what that does is it unintentionally closes the door on ideas that could help shape who we are, sharpen what we believe, provide us with a roadmap for the kind of world we want to live in. The shame, it does some of the same work as oppression. It keeps us quiet and uninformed. And what we're left with is just this very basic understanding of these iconic revolutionaries from the past. Understanding that really isn't anything at all. Just vibes. And for the longest time, that's all I had for my man's H-Rap Brown. Just a cool name I remembered from college and vibes. Which is why I'm so hyped for that to change today. Because according to Mac, this man embodies everything about the Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame. And he has a lot to teach us. He's an activist, a fly and foul-mouthed lyrical genius who loves payback. And he's just an all-around bad, bad dude with dangerous ideas about liberation. And Mac says he's literally Mr. Fuck Your Everything. So let's put shame and embarrassment to the side for a second and close out this series and induct H-Rap Brown into the Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame. Let's get into it. All right, so Rap was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1943, and he got the name Rap because he was skilled at playing the dozens in school. And you familiar with the dozens, right? Oh, man, that makes so much sense. Yes. Right. All right, so for anybody listening who's not familiar with the dozens, because that's possible, um, I'm not talking about the dozens, I'm talking about the dirty dozens, which is just like a, historically, it's like a basically wordplay where you like tearing somebody down, you know, jokingly or building yourself up. Um, roasting the hell just out of roasting them. the hell out of people it was it was rap before it was rap right and so in his autobiography he wrote uh sort of like he wrote down some of the things that he was like for not like uh i guess well known for saying when he was in school you know when he was in middle school high school this would have been like the early 50s right and he's like on the playground putting down shit like this rap is my name and love is my game I'm the bed tucker, the cock plucker, the motherfucker, the milkshaker, the record breaker, the population maker, the gunslinger, the baby bringer, the humdinger, the pussy ringer, the man with the <laughs> terrible middle finger, the hard hitter, the bullshitter, the poly nussy getter, the beast from the east, the judge, the sludge, the women's pets, the men's fret, the punk boys pinup. They call me rap, the dicker, the ass kicker, the cherry oh, picker, shit. the city slicker, the titty licker, and I ain't giving up nothing but bubble gum and hard times, and I'm fresh out of bubble gum. You know, he was like on the playground. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Yo, yes, on the playground putting down shit like that. So, you know, he wasn't just the kind of person that was talking shit. He was always backing this up. So I want to tell you about a time when he was in the Cub Scouts. So he was in the Cub Scouts 
Cub Scout gang. I used to be in the Cub Scouts. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, well, I'm about to tell you about some different kind of Cub Scout shit. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Rap is in, I, I, I'm going to say his elementary school years. He's in the Cub Scouts. And they go to this thing called a Cub Scout Circus that they used to have on the campus of um, Louisiana State University. So, mm-hmm. you walk into this coliseum and they got like the walls where they keep the animals in the back. And but of course it's like segregated. So the black people sit kind of where the animals are, and then you got like the area where the white people sit, and it's the white section. And according to rap, like he told him, explained to him as a kid, the reason why he could never go to the white section is because the crackers would shoot them with BB guns. Mm. But even from a young age, rap, like his reaction is like. I ain't did nothing to the motherfuckers and they ain't gonna shoot me. So oh, wow. he took that as a challenge and like go see what's up. So like he's walking through the white section and somebody yells, nigger, you have been sentenced to death. <laughs> and they start shooting him with the BB what? guns. Yo, like 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 they told him. Like, yeah, what they happened? yes, they start unloading on him. So he's like hauling ass trying to climb over a, over a stall. And when he gets to this like barbed wire fence. He rips the seat of his pants. So he's a kid sitting here trying to figure out what to do. He like, all right, should I tell somebody or not? And so he decided to go to one of his white scout masters to be like, bruh, like they shot me. <laughs> they shot me. <laughs> and bruh's like, like, look here, be a good sport about it, scout. And, and be a good scout about it, sport. Be a good sport about it, scout. Be a good sport about it, scout. Okay. And so rap is like, bro, how the fuck am I gonna be a good sport about being shot? That doesn't make <laughs> sense to me. So he makes this plan to take revenge into his own hands. So I'm gonna read to you Damn. what he says that he did. So he wrote down what he what he did and what he said was, well, the white troops always went out before us to entertain. So when mm-hmm. they went out, I went back there and fucked up all their food. I peed in the tuna fish. I spit in the potato oh, salad. No. I threw the hot dogs on the ground. I stepped on the potato chips. I messed up everything. Them crackers had made me what? tear my only Cub Scout pants right in the seat and shot me too. <laughs> Damn. Yo, who is this man? bro? and like peep this. He went back the second year and took his own BB gun, did the same thing, and shot back live in the circus. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? Yo, yes. And so this moment is really pivotal in his life because he said, and I'm going to quote him again, I began to realize then the value of being violent. I knew I hadn't done anything to them white motherfuckers to shoot their BB guns at me. So I knew the world didn't run on love. The only thing that was going to keep them white motherfuckers off you was you. Hmm. But like, my thing is, if I was him and somebody told me not to go somewhere because the white people were going to shoot at me, I just wouldn't go. And if I went and I got shot at, I'd be like, oh, well, they told me not to do that. Why did I do that? That's you, not rap. Yeah, well, I, I guess I, I guess that's, that's true. So when rap talks about growing up like in the 60s and whatnot, there's three distinct groups of people in America that he references. You have blacks or black people on one side, 
And then you have what you hear him refer to as like white people, aka honkies, aka crackers. But in between both of those groups, he has what he specifically points out as Negroes. And like these people, he. I, hold on, wait. I, I just got to say one thing. Like, I feel like when white people are like, why can't we say the N word? They're always, they're always like, well, you call us hunk, honkies and crackers. And I'm just like, no, we don't. I've never heard anybody call anybody, any white person that. But here he is. Yo. H. Rap Brown. Yo. Like, <laughs> he was like straight up calling white people crackers and honkies. Yo, like, like in casual conversation. It's actually amazing. We need to bring that shit back. But he was like <laughs> straight up like honky honky cracker so you have on one side you have blacks or black people you have honkies or crackers and in the middle you have this distinct group called negroes and he doesn't hmm. use the word coon that's not a word that he uses very often his thing is toms and tommin so tom is the active noun and tomming as the verb like verb. and i think that shit hits so much harder <laughs> personally <laughs> so damn you are you Tommen, bro? Yeah. Why are you Tommen right Tommen, now? Like, he, like, you read his autobiography and he'll just talk about, like, being in meetings and he was like, oh, these niggas was Tommen, like, niggas never Tom before. Like, it's just yeah, so basically electric. Basically, sing, singing, singing and dancing in front of white people yeah. and make them feel comfortable. Yeah, and it's actually really funny because uh, because this is something that, like, rap observes pretty much his whole life, right? Like, that class dynamic in the black community is actually why he ends up dropping out of college because um, he went to Southern University, the HBCU in um, Louisiana, he just has this like real problem with what he calls like Negro authority and this like class of Black people that he feels like are more interested in like their own personal come up than like actual liberation for Black people. Right. But before he drops out of college, he gets introduced to the civil rights movement, which is kind of brewing at the moment, and like gets involved in all kinds of organizing work. He moves to D.C. and becomes a leader in this group that's working to combat like racism and segregation and stuff like that in D.C. Uh huh. So there's this meeting at the White House right after Bloody Sunday um, that happened in Selma, and he's invited there along with a bunch of other civil rights leaders to meet with the President Johnson. So they get in Johnson's office and the Negroes, as he says it, like they in there smiling, like you can see all the teeth, they're shaking hands and they have to do this thing where they all go around the table and like introduce themselves. And so like everybody's going around the table and he's like, everybody is like, President Johnson, I'm so happy to be here. Da, 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 da. And he's like sitting in his chair, like fuming, like, oh, oh y'all are dead ass. Like <laughs> pass me the like, mic right now. We Give me the mic right the now. <laughs> No, he's not even trying to wait till they get to the hotel room. He's like, literally, just let me speak. I can't wait till y'all get done. So, you know, they're like, they're all there kind of doing what he calls Tommen. They came with this like list of demands. They came with this grievance because like, understand, they are there responding to, to Bloody Sunday in Selma. Like black people just got beat and brutalized. He's absolutely not happy to be there. So they pass this letter mm. across the table to President Johnson. He says President Johnson barely reads the letter before he like kind of passes it back. And he also tells them, the black people and the Negroes sitting in the room, that like he feels like they are infringing on his human rights because his daughters couldn't sleep last night because all the picketing they was doing in front of the white house so at this point rap is just like bruh i cannot wait until y'all let me speak oh johnson is telling them about 
about yeah. the problems he has, even though black people yeah. just got done being killed. He's yeah, black about, people just got killed and beat up, but he's like, but y'all kept my, my two daughters up last night with all your hooting and hollering. Oh, man. This is fertile territory for a man such as this. This is material. This is opportunity. This is an open win. This is a weakness. Like People like this are salivating. When they get something like this, like he's, he's about to eat, ready to go. Right, he's, he's about, about to, eat. to eat. He's about to eat. Okay. So he's basically like, I started off by telling Johnson, I'm actually not happy to be here, and I think it's unnecessary. We have to be here protesting, protesting against the brutality that Black people are subjected to. And furthermore, I think that the majority of Black people that voted for you wish they had gone fishing. So then Damn. to respond to the point about the president's two daughters not being able to sleep because niggas was outside the White House doing all that hooting and hollering, he was like, I don't think anybody is interested in whether your daughters could sleep or not. We are interested in the lives of our people. Like, nigga, what side is the federal government on, basically? Like, put hmm. it, like he put them on the summer jam screen, like... Enough with the pleasantries, enough with the passing the letters back and forth, enough with talking about your daughters. The hmm. fuck are y'all going to do? You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Like, you know how when uh, Jerome, from the previous Water Found story. Oh, you damn right. I remember Jerome. <laughs> yeah, that's my man. <laughs> Jerome. So, yeah, but like at Jer- when Jerome met with RFK, like he had James Baldwin and like Lorraine's, Lorraine Hansberry. Like he had uh-huh. people that was really backing him up. Right. But this was this was different. This was different because remember he described the people that he was in this room with, and it was not uh-huh. James Baldwin or Lorraine Hansberry. Um, it was it was the Toms, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so he basically like blows up all the air in the, like he just pulls all the room air out the room because niggas was happy to be there before. You know what I mean? Right, right. And right. so as he says immediately after he does that, like. The people in the Negroes in the room are like, President Johnson, like, we're so sorry. Like, we have to apologize on his behalf. He basically effectively, like, ends the meeting, right? But then he's like, they come out, (laughs) they come out of the meeting and all the Negroes running up to him like, yeah, you did that. Thank you for speaking (laughs) up. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And he's honestly like, honestly, fuck y'all. And the funniest thing about the whole story he and when the way he recounts it is that like on the way out of the White House, he started stealing shit out the White House. What? Bruh, he writes. What was he? What? What was he taking? He writes, and to show the motherfuckers what I thought about the whole meeting, I stole some stuff out the White House. I liberated everything I could. Sure did. (laughs) Show you what I think of you motherfuckers. I was trying to figure out how to get a painting off the wall and put it under my coat. I figured it belonged to me anyway. (laughs) Bow. (laughs) Damn. (sighs) So... This man is bold. This is a bold man. This is a bold man, but you ain't really even heard the half of it yet. <laughs> okay. Coming up after the break, the half of it. What's good, y'all? Welcome back. H. Rap Brown, the man who pissed in the tuna and pissed off the president, is about to become a really big deal in the Black Power movement. Here's Mac with the rest of it. Rap's life gets pretty chaotic post this White House moment. Like, it kind of makes him a target. Like, you know, you pull up in the White House talking shit to the president, 
it you kind of gonna be in some shit. But like this don't this don't phase him because like at this point in time, the black power movement in the U.S. is like in swing. <laughs> in May 1967, he became the chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC), and in July of 1967, he's invited to Cambridge, Maryland, to give a speech. Cambridge. We've been to Cambridge before. Cambridge, what's going on? And he's invited by none other than Gloria motherfucking Richardson. Gloria! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Damn, that makes so much sense. Yes. They're on the same wavelength. They're on the the same wavelength. They had done... They had been, they had done, they had been in similar spaces. They had done work before in the past. He had seen her before. They like, they shared space. You know what I mean? Yeah. So him becoming the chairman of SNCC for her was like, oh, my nigga, come through Cambridge, like speak. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like so happy that these, all these people are like in the same like cinematic universe. (laughs) It is. It's like, these are the, this is like, these are like the Avengers of the 60s. H. Rap Brown, <laughs> Gloria Richardson, Jerome Smith, like Link up. low-key Avengers though. Like Yeah, for sure. So in Cambridge, you gotta picture this. He's like standing on the hood of this 55 Buick in a drugstore parking lot. And mm-hmm. he like the literal oh, Yeah, damn. but like the literal first words of his speech are he's like, black power. That's the way to say it. Don't be scared of these honkies around here. Say black power. That's how he opens the speech. Damn. So you already know it's going up from here. In the speech, he's like, fuck nonviolence. Uh, we not fighting the white man's war for him. He reminds them that like black people built this country and white folks have no right to call us lazy. Mm. He 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 shits on black cops. Um, he encourages everybody in the crowd to like get a gun and protect themselves from American genocide. But most importantly, he says this. You got to understand that black folks is not a minority. You ain't got more black folks across the world than they got white people. You got to start looking at China like brothers because they are yellow people. Vietcong, some of the Vietcongs are browner than some of us, nigga. All India, Indians are dark-skinned people. These are the colored people of the world. These are the black people of the world. That's the third world that they be talking about. All other people, now Hunky is surrounded. He's surrounded, you don't know what to do. What he just say? The honky is surrounded. Oh damn! Yeah, yo, this man, this man loved the word honky. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's that. Well, he so, so he's saying he's saying white people are surrounded by by black folks. Yeah, what he what, what he's basically doing is this like this this call to like internationalism. Like he's encouraging black people in the U.S. to like start thinking about like brown people around the world and like what we could do if all of us like you know linked up and like form allegiances to each other basically right very pan-africanist very very much very much very much so and like that was like a sort of growing sort of ideology at the time was basically what a lot of folks call revolutionary nationalism Mm-hmm. They were moving away from this idea of just like it's just us black people in the United States to like oh it's black people everywhere um everywhere yeah. 
And that's right. like that was that was a very dangerous idea. Um right. in the in the late sixties. Is what is is what got Malcolm killed. <laughs> like it's what King was coming into around the time he was assassinated. So Nah, yeah, it just always seems like as soon as people start shouting the ideas about bringing people together and like right. bridging gaps between people's understanding about each other and like actual collectivizing power amongst oppressed peoples, that's when they get killed. Correcto. It's, that's literally like the, the like, as fucked up as it sounds, like that's like the last the last point on the bingo card. Right, right. Like you hit that and they take you you're out. You're out. You're out of here, buddy. So he hops down off the Buick, ends the speech, and at the end of his speech, this sister comes up to him and she's like, hey, I'm trying to go home. I got to walk home, but like, I don't feel safe walking by myself. Will you walk with me? He's like, yeah. So he starts to like walk her oh, home damn. and all of a sudden he hears gunshots and he realizes there are people just firing into the crowd with pellets. Just like, doop, 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 doop. And he actually gets shot in the head. And so it ends up being a whole thing. Like it's this whole shootout. But the people of Cambridge, like they look out, like they take care of him. They get the wound cleaned up and all that. But the next day he wakes up and finds out he's wanted by the FBI. What? Like they basically try to charge him with like inciting a riot, but he didn't, Yeah, yeah. he didn't incite a riot. He gave a speech and the cops started shooting. You know what I mean? Right, right. Alright, so the state charges him with inciting a riot, there's a warrant out for his arrest, and he ends up getting taken to a federal jail. But as soon as his lawyers get him out of the federal jail, the state police are there waiting to arrest him. Right, because there's still state charges open against him. Right. And so he knows that as soon as he walks out of Mm -hmm. this jail, he's just going to get, like, as soon as he walks out of this he's just going to get arrested again. So he comes up mm-hmm. with a plan, right? So now I'm about to show you the result of that plan. Brown, are you under arrest? I am supposedly free. I have a shaky freedom because I'm standing on America's territory right here. That's the only thing that's keeping the racist honky cops out there from coming up here because I'm supposed to be on federal ground, whatever that means. What happens well, now? What are you going to do when you leave federal ground? Well, I'm going to stay here on the steps. I'm going to build a house right here. I don't want 40 acres and a mule. I just want some lumber. I'm going to build a house. <laughs> did, the attorney, did the U.S. attorney tell you why he released you from the charges that originally were arraigned for? He finally dug how ridiculous they were. He knew he didn't have nothing on me in the beginning. He was just holding me until the honkies got here for mail. Why he made that clear. From Alexander. Who served a, who attempted to serve a warrant on you upstairs? As I walked out of the cell, two big animal-like, blue-eyed, pale devils come up yeah. and grab me on the arm right. and tell me I'm under arrest. However, I know more of their law than they do. Who I knew they? I was in a federal building. I don't know the honk. You, you see one, one, you see them all. Oh no. Alright. So in that clip, you just saw what him, just happened. So you just saw him standing there, right, with the with the shades, the denim jacket situation, the fro, the fro and the the signature bandage. Like he ends up rocking that for a while. But um, basically, like a Nelly bandaid. <laughs> Nelly before Nelly, yeah. Um, basically, what ends up happening is like 
they peep that he really is serious about just standing on them steps. Like his idea is like, as long as I'm on federal property, the state can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to stand here. So they just end up pushing him off the steps and into the street. Oh, that's what was happening at the so end of the at video. At the end of the video, you see them pushing him off the steps and into the street. And as soon as they hit the streets, they lock his ass up again. And like this time when they lock him up, they make his bail like ridiculously high like some shit that he cannot afford his lawyer has to like go to court like he's in like he's in jail for a prolonged period of time and this is pretty much a sign of like what's to come for rap like for the rest of his life he's basically in and out of jail like the state keeps trying to get him caught up on different things different Mm. firearms charges this gun is too long this gun is illegal this gun is too short like that kind of thing so he's like in and out of jail in and out of jail and in one of his prison stints, he actually ends up converting to Islam. Oh, wow. Dope. In 1971, he declared his shahada and he became Jamil Abdullah Al-Amin. Um, so I'm just going hmm. to refer to him as Jamil Al-Amin from this point forward because that's kind of how I understand him. Um, so he converts to Islam and Islam really like changes his life. Like it like... Coming, go, going, going to Islam like changes. Like, it makes him a different person, which is why I feel bad about spending so much of the story referring to him as H. Rat Brown because that was a part of his life. But Jamil Alami re- is the person that reemerges from the prison. All right, so so he comes out of prison and he is now uh, he's now Muslim, and. And you think of him, you think of him as somebody different now, right? Like in his new, yeah. with his new name. So, so how is he, how is he different? Yeah. So I got this clip for you that I think really shows kind of that change. Word. The Prophet Wasallam has said, never petition Allah for armed combat, but when it comes, be patient. Oh my God. Never petition, never pray to Allah for armed combat, never pray for war. But when it comes, be patient. And so therefore he gives us those tools that enables us to practice sabra, to develop sabra, prayer, fasting, charity. Wow. That sounds like a totally different dude than Atrap Brown. Like the dude we heard from the beginning. That's yeah. that's wild. He sounds so di- he sounds so different. Yeah, it's a, it's a different person. In that clip, you hear him saying, like, never pray to God for war. Which is like a slightly different position than like rap, H. Rap Brown of the past was really taken. Like H. Rap Brown was like with that rah-rah shit. Like he was like tool up. Mm. We need to start. We need to start initiating <laughs> arm struggle right now. Like, you know what I mean? Right, but, right, right, but, right. But like the imam, because he's an imam at this point, Jamil Alameen, he basically right. is like, he's still on that revolution shit, but he's less focused on like mobilizing black people to start going into the street and shooting and more about organizing us to be prepared for the time that revolution comes because like you know that's not really how revolution right. works you don't just run out into the street and start shooting like there's you got to yeah. organize your communities like people got to know where you can get food people gotta you right. know be getting like counseling and like therapy and getting off drugs and all that kind of stuff and so these are the kinds of things that he's focused on now um as an right. and it's all and it's all based on like patience all based like, on patience pa- like Right, which is probably something he found in in prison when he converted to Islam. It's just like we need to be we need to be patient and just build build up and tool up and like tool up, but like in a way that's strategic. Yep, yep, and that's exactly what he was on. 
So like by the 90s, this is like his life full time. He's like moved to Atlanta and he's like in Atlanta organizing this real tight knit like Muslim community. Um, Mm -hmm. And like a part of that is getting people together and organizing self-defense like on the west end of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, He's like working with people to get drugs off the street. Um, And he's like doing it all from this little convenience store that he owns. Basically, like it's like his little shop and like people just be pulling up and be like, Imam, like what should we be doing today? You know, and he's just Mm -hmm. giving orders from there. But the police don't really ever stop fucking with him. So eventually he gets thrown back in jail in 2000. The year 2000? The year 2000. De- like decades later? Like decades later. But this time it's a whole lot different because he's being accused of killing a cop during a shootout that happened outside his convenience store in Atlanta. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 nuts. Like... This whole time, he's basically maintained his innocence mm-hmm. on some like I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. do it. You know, obviously he says he didn't do mm-hmm. it, and there's even somebody that's publicly confessed to the murder themselves. Like the whole thing is a mess. Hmm. So yeah, that was 21 years ago, and now like today, Jamil Alamine is 77 years old. 77, fam. He's being held in a prison in Arizona on a life charge, even though he has a case that's open in Georgia, because they don't trust him in Georgia prisons, because he has a history of organizing prisoners. They've sent skinheads and Klan members to his cell to like take him out, and all he's done is convert them. People come to his cells, and they to his cell, and they take Shahada. What? Yes, so they've moved him out. <laughs> they've moved him out of Georgia entirely and put him in a godforsaken cell in Arizona. He's 77 years old. They've withheld access to necessary surgery and medication to him to the extent that he's become blind in prison. His body is failing. He can't read letters from any of his supporters. He can, like, let alone read any legal correspondence. He cannot appropriately defend himself. It's just a bunch of inhumane shit. Oh my god. This is this is a lot. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And uh, so that sounds that is that sound well one I'm I'm like really yeah, I'm really like saddened to hear that he is just being freaking like I don't even know how to describe it. Just like he's just being like tortured and screwed over and like just like messed with in that way in his old age. Like that's like He's an old uh, man. Yeah, he's an old man. Um and like yeah, that's yeah, I can't get over that. That's just like that's 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 weighing heavy on me. What is it about the life of Jamil Alamin that like you feel like holds that fuck your water fountain energy and like deserves to be in in this hall of fame i mean there's a lot but yeah yeah what is it what is it for you it's it all right you're right it is a lot but i'm gonna answer your question directly by saying that from the beginning of his life jameel alamin was mr fuck your everything he was mr fuck your mm. cub scout program you know what i'm saying he was mm-hmm. mr fuck your elections he's been mr fuck your gun laws he's been mr fuck your war i'm not going to war for y'all he's been mr fuck your president um, he's been Mr. He's been Mr. Fuck Your Everything. 
And so I think what mm-hmm. uh, Jam- what Jamil Alamine really demonstrates is like an idea of fuck fear. Like he he hmm. says that like once you step out on this revolutionary shit, you can't go back. Like you can't just you be can't like, psych, back. my bad. I didn't mean to say all that like black power shit. Like this is the this is the path that you that you go that you go on for you know the rest of your life. Jamil Alamine and all of our revolutionary elders and all the political prisoners that we've lost um, from that generation, they all make it clear that like, if we understand black people are at war, right? Like we're not waiting on a war to come. We're not waiting on fascism to get here. It's already here. Then we need to understand the rules of war. And so his whole thing Mm -hmm. was understand that the number one rule of war before you start celebrating any small victories before you start creating your own progress narratives before you start talking about peace treaties or any kind of that kind of stuff the number one agenda item on your list this is what all my elders tell me is that you must demand the release of your political prisoners because otherwise Mm. what incentive do people in your movement have to believe that if they become victims of the state you Mm. will fight for them That makes a lot of sense because like one of my main things was like his whole thing is fuck fear and just do it anyway. That's why I was like so surprised when he did the thing with the BB gun and literally the thing that people told him would happen happened. And that's literally what happened later is like he kept going down that path and kept doing that same kind of fuck fear uh, uh, motivated actions and like it eventually got him locked up and became he became, you know, a political prisoner he's framed from the frame for this murder um but like when you look at that you just say i feel like i just say to myself then like well i don't know if i could say fuck fear because like look at the results of you saying fuck fear the results of you saying fuck fear is like awful this is like absolutely awful yeah but but the idea that you're saying now about like um the number one thing that we should ask for is the release of our political prisoners because it, it guarantees that like if we do the same things that we won't end up in the same place then that right that makes sense yeah i thought when people say free free mumia or free this person free that person we're, we're really just like saying free them because like you know these are people who really did a lot for us and like or they're being framed and but it's like deeper than that you're telling me it's that strategy it's, like, it's strategy it's war strategy it's strategy yeah it's interesting because I think this is the first fuck your water fountain we've done that requires something of us that like requires us to have the same energy in our own lives and, you know, just push ourselves to have a greater understanding of people like a trap Brown who without that understanding, just get lost to history and are forgotten in a cell somewhere, you know? Yeah, bro. Like they're still here. Like they're, they're in jail. Like they need support. They like, they need people to remember and, and continue to fight for them. And like, also I hope they encourage us to like, stop thinking about these people as just like people of the past and like understand like mm-hmm. political prisoners are being created every day. You know what I mean? Like with all these like anti-riot laws and anti-protest bills, like there are people, mm. you know, like our age fighting uh, bogus charges uh, against the courts right now and, and sitting in jail, you know? Yeah. So we need to like be conscious of that because, you know, I would hate for us to be 77 one day and still be asking the free people 
arrested for just trying to organize their community in 2021. Mm. Jamil Alamine, formerly known as H. Rat Brown. For the past 21 years, he's been locked up and like, inducting him into our Hall of Fame won't free him. But his ideas, his bars, his legacy and life's work, that definitely deserves to be studied and honored. And with that, we induct Jamil Alamine into our Fuck Your Water Fountain Hall of Fame. I just reached another milestone. And I'm hitting it while stoned. Emotions running high and low resemble the Dow Jones. Alas, I stay afloat, but got some fame I would drop. Thank you so much for listening. Resistance is produced by Salifu Sise Mac, Bethel Hapte, Aaron Randall, and hosted by me, Saeed T. John Thomas Jr. Our production assistant is Navani Otero. Our supervising producer is Sarah McVee. And we're edited by Lynn Levy, Lydia Paul Green, and Brendan Klinkenberg. Mixing, scoring, and magic by Katherine Anderson. Additional scoring and theme by Bobby Lord. Our music supervisor is Liz Fulton. Original compositions by Drea, the Vibe Dealer. Fact-checking is by Rosemarie Ho. Our show art is by Darian Burks of the Stuyvesants. And our credits music, which you're listening to right now, is Cloud Cover by Campaigner. Good looks, homie. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. I really appreciate that. And if you have somebody who you think deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, hit us up. Send an email to resistance at gimletmedia.com with the subject line, FYWF. You can find me on Twitter at SaeedTTJ. You can follow us on IG at Resistance Podcast. Resistance is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. All right. See y'all in two weeks. Existing in the way they treat our pain will be the bane of my existence. I refrain from letting days go by while holding my tongue. It's safe to say that I'm as real as they come. And now the weather's overcast, the clouds will cover the sun. It's just a metaphor for life. See, when you start to see the light, it'd be too hard to ignore. You know it's dead because you felt it before. Let's stand together, stop becoming an immeasurable force.